2: Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I thought you should know that uh, the show this week would not be possible without Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. It features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code longform at checkout. You'll get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful.
3: Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. Evan Ratliff! Back. As you guys know, uh, the podcast has been on hiatus for like six weeks.
4: (laughs) Yeah, we would never do it without you.
3: (laughs) And now that we're back, we've got some new and exciting
4: guests. Yeah, don't, don't check the RSS feed. I'm glad to be back, you guys. Hey, we're glad to have sort you. Sort of, it's been lonely here. <laughs> Thought about not coming back at all. We it seemed know you like did. the show
2: was going fine. I we have, listened to it. We're we, very aware of how close you came to the, never coming back. The
4: line back. was about even odds on you ever uh, setting foot in the studio again. Um, but we would have been uh, heartbroken should that occur. So, welcome back, Evan. Who did you um, who who did you who did you get on for your your comeback special uh,
3: this week? I talked to uh, Bill Finnegan, William Finnegan. He's got a book out right now called uh, Barbarian Days. And it's about, it's a memoir. It's about his life as a surfer, uh, but he's also written for decades for The New Yorker. Uh, he's been a war reporter. He's done all sorts of things. And uh, I wanted to interview him for a long time and wasn't getting around to it. And then we got an email from a guy named Ashton Goggins, who is a surf writer, surfer and surf writer in, I think, San Francisco. yeah who said, not only we get a lot of emails from people saying, you should have this person on, or yes. that person on, not only should we have Bill Finnegan on, but here's Bill Finnegan's email, <laughs> and I'll, I'm going to put you in touch with him to make sure. Didn't he also say, on. like,
4: I was, like, surfing with Bill Finnegan, and I was, like, telling him about the podcast. And I just, I just want to say, Ashton Goggin's most helpful request <laughs> ever. Usually requests are like, why haven't you had so-and-so on? What the hell? Please keep them coming. But uh, this one came fully packaged with a bow on the top, um, and it was someone who, who is one of the most uh, requested uh, writers that we've had. Um, so this was a, a win for all. It was a thrill to talk to him.
2: Oh, I'm so excited for this one. Uh, we got a sponsor this week, Aaron.
4: It's Tiny Letter from the good people at MailChimp. It's a simple way to keep an email newsletter for all the little things that you need to keep people informed about what you're reading, what you're writing, what you're thinking, all that kind of stuff. Thank you, MailChimp. Thank you, Tiny Letter. Here's Evan,
2: back with Bill Finnegan.
4: Welcome to the
3: podcast, Bill. Very happy to be here. I'm extremely tired today, and it's because I stayed up finishing the book last night, (laughs) the recent book, and then I stayed up much beyond that just sort of thinking about it. It's a memoir. It's about surfing, but it's about friendship. It's about a lot of other things. How did it come about? Did you write it because uh, you had always sort of planned at some point, uh, I want to write about this period of my life or this side of my life? What was sort of the, the reason behind wanting to do it after all of the other types of reporting and writing that you've done?
1: I really backed into this book. And no, I did not plan to write about most of this stuff mm-hmm. ever at all. Hmm. used to keep quite voluminous journals and not so much anymore. And what they were toward, I'm not sure. Especially looking back through them, you know, what was I thinking? I mean, there's tons of just, you know, agonizing over girls and stuff about what I was reading and a great deal of stuff about what I was writing uh-huh. in my journals. Ruminations about characters and scenes. I can't even remember what was going on in those scenes, <laughs> why I was so wrought up about it, what these glorious solutions I came to were. My journals were full of stuff <laughs> like that. Uh-huh. Where they should have been, you know, recording dialogue and full of close observation and... and close accounts of surf sessions. I found none of those anywhere in my diaries, even when I went to look at them to, for the purposes of this book. Oh, really? Nothing. Huh. Um, well, not nothing. I mean, there were, there were certain sort of peak days and out of decades of surfing that actually caused me to write things in my journals about them.
3: But you weren't daily describing the waves? Not at all, them.
1: not at all. I did find a lot of surf descriptions in letters that I recovered, mm-hmm. letters to friends, uh, especially friends who surf where I wrote in detail about what the waves had been like or some great ride I'd got or some fiasco. And those were really valuable to the writing of this book. But the way I backed into it was, well, I was living in San Francisco freelancing in the 80s. And um, I sent the New Yorker a short piece, a political piece, just over the transom, first thing I'd sent them, and they took it. And somebody in the editor's office said, this would be a good time to propose a longer piece if you want to. And Uh I wanted to write for them. And I thought, oh, I gotta do it right now. What you know, I don't have an idea, I don't have an idea. And so the first thing that sort of caught my eye or came to mind, was a profile of this guy I was surfing with at the time at Ocean Beach in mm-hmm. San Francisco. Um he seemed like a big kind of New Yorker profile subject. Really a kind of classic John McPhee charismatic outdoorsman protagonist. So I proposed that and um got the assignment. And then had the problem of writing it. I had really never written about surfing, and uh, well, I'd done a few little pieces for surf magazine in Australia, but um, didn't really think about surfing, and and hadn't really ever thought about writing about surfing for a general audience. And well, um,
3: particularly a New Yorker audience, which is
1: yeah know, something yeah. slightly different, perhaps yeah. a long reach from what I was doing to where I assumed readers might be, and yeah. So that piece took me seven years to write, missed a couple deadlines, um, was just really inhibited about it for a variety of reasons. And during that time, I moved to New York and and published three books and, and joined the staff of The New Yorker and wrote a lot of pieces, including a lot of political opinion pieces, mm-hmm. um, which made me think that it might be a bad idea to come out of the closet as a surfer with that piece if I ever got that damn piece done.
3: You had an identity that you didn't necessarily want to include along with the work that you were doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, You could just imagine people um, saying, what? Oh, you're just a dumb surfer. You know, we don't have to listen to you. These kind of policy debates I was engaged in at the time. It was also hard to get it right. And I was also nervous about the reaction of the protagonist to the piece. I was afraid he wouldn't like the piece. Mm -hmm. So all these things conspired to make me take a long time to write it. And and I was right about him, he hated the piece, and I was wrong about people reacting in this way that... somehow taking you less seriously. Yeah, nobody said anything about it, nobody cared. Yeah. <laughs> um, the piece got actually a big reaction, a lot of attention, and my publisher said, let's do it as a book. When did the piece come out? The, it was in Came the, out in 92. In the 90s, yeah, early yeah. 90s. Two-parter. Big two-part piece, like a 40,000-word piece, and I had a lot more material, so I had a Books worth material, and, mm-hmm. and my publisher, Ann Godoff, said, um, "Let's just do this as a book." You know, people are talking about it, and I said, "No, I didn't see the book, and I didn't want to rub the this guy's face in it anymore. I didn't like it." And to put her off, I started describing other places and other guys I'd surfed with, and and I said, "It's really this was just a, something I happened to do." With it. You know, I've surfed much more interesting places with much more interesting people. And after a certain amount of that, she said, okay, then, you know, why don't you write that book? In <laughs> that way I sort of backed into it and said, yeah, well, maybe, maybe, maybe I could kind of see something. When what I saw was very schematic, kind of over-defined. And I was reluctant on many levels to, to do that, even to enter into memoir. You know, as a reporter, that's a... Very weird genre to jump into. I mean, I I see the
3: there's there's space between those two things, but it's also true in your in your reporting. You'd written the book about teaching in South Africa, in which mm-hmm. you you're you're in there, and even reading a bunch of your old New Yorker pieces, you're often in there lightly mm-hmm. as as the reporter character. So, what felt different about delving in this far?
1: Well, that book about teaching in Cape Town, my first book, Crossing the Line. Was autobiographical. Yet I changed everybody's names mm-hmm. for privacy reasons, but mainly for political reasons, for security reasons. It was you know a, a situation in South Africa, state terror, and most of the people I was writing about were um, political activists. Uh, so even changed the names though of, of friends. And then it was, it was after living in Cape Town that I really became a journalist and a political journalist and and uh kind of began to internalize some of the, the canons of, of journalism and I never became a news reporter. I um, wrote mainly long form and opinion columns and, and and short uh like Talk of the Town pieces and really a lot of things. Freelancing, you know, especially write all kinds of stuff. But it's true in the in the more ambitious pieces I was I felt free to use my character myself, the I character as a as a sort of foil. Mm-hmm. Uh, or or someone for the I- reader to identify with at different points but those were judgment calls and it wasn't every piece at all and and I was the journalist that was always my identity and or the fool or whatever it was but with this like that long surfing piece I moved much deeper into the piece it was about my life my history and and part of the story was a kind of ongoing debate between me and this guy's name's Mark Renicker it was the uh He's a a doctor and and uh, quite a surf evangelist. He was a big wave surfer and and uh, really um, persuasive guy, fanatical surfer. And he kind of believed in surfing as this thing that you know could make you whole and can make you better and make can make you more than you, you know. He was really, never met anybody who was quite so um, <laughs> convinced about surfing. And and I was m- quite ambivalent. So a lot of the piece was. Um, him trying to get me to take surfing more <laughs> right. seriously and me saying, you go ahead. And, and so I'm the journalist covering him, but I'm also out, and I gotta be out in the water with him and, and I'm surfing with him. And there's sort of reflections of my surfing life in there. And there actually is another guy in that piece who sort of rises up in part two, a local hero uh, and, and also a big wave surfer, kind of a strong, silent type, kind of the opposite of Mark. Pee-wee. Pee-wee. And I ended up interviewing Pee-wee, who was shocked when I asked to interview him. I mean, this is not his his world at all to be interviewed Um, but he said a number of interesting things including about surfing generally how dangerous it was how addictive, how kind of morally dangerous it was a thing to do because as he put it inimitably the biggest locals are the biggest derelicts which just meant the more you get into it the more likely you are to end up on the street and have no life and and so he kind of held surfing at arm's length too even though he did it beautifully And, and with deep deep commitment he was also trying to keep it at pay. So there was that debate between those two and between Mark and me, and uh, and within me, obviously. And and I was trying to sort of keep surfing in this place. I sort of felt like there was nothing to say about it. And that was what one of the things Mark was saying to me. No, no, it's, you know, it's this endlessly interesting topic. And it is in a narrow way between surfers. People can talk surf all night, you know, finer points and different kinds of adventures one has had but especially like finer points of board design and different mm-hmm. kinds of ways at different mm-hmm. different places at different moments of the day and different conditions but outside the surfing world I just felt like there was sort of nothing to say but working that piece made me realize it was a way to to address the general reader and kind of bring them in and, and do something fairly electric on the page so I, I semi-agreed to to write a Long, write a book about my surfing life. Um, but then it was a good 20 years <laughs> plus before I finally delivered it.
3: Yeah, <laughs>
1: over 20 it sounds like. Yeah, good and take. I you know, wrote other books and, and <laughs> um, did a lot of pieces and other projects. And it was hard partly, um, this was true during the years it took me to write that first piece too, to, to stick with a subject so in a sense trivial um, when most of my reportings on pretty hard edge subjects, you know, a lot of conflict reporting, um, war, poverty, race, these are my sort of my main topics, politics very broadly defined yeah and um, and so when I would turn to this surfing project i I it was a relief from all that um, just as surfing was a huge relief from that kind of reporting. And I could plunge into it, and, and felt literarily um, quite engaged, and and personally more and more. Um, but it was just hard to justify. And you know, I, these other topics are self-evidently urgent. You know, there's a crisis, a humanitarian crisis, whatever it is. And a lot of pieces I did in Africa and and the Balkans, Central America, just felt like they needed to be done. Mm. Things were really at stake, and and, and not that you know I. I had any illusions about my saving any situation, but um, at least letting the world know about, you know, what was going on or what I saw in various crises. And so that kept dissuading me from working on this mm-hmm. um, and convincing me I needed to go do something serious. And <laughs> so it just took years to, to finally bear down on it. And slowly my my idea of it changed, became less schematic, less kind of absolutely masculine. I, I wanted it to be a book about Men and, and and these surf spots that I had devoted long chunks of my life to. They're characters in the book. These these locations. Yeah, the these, waves. The waves. Yeah. They, they're they're complicated, and so are the people. And I thought they'd make great stories, but really it was too schematic. And at some point, um, a, a girlfriend of mine. It was a it was a Maui chapter. I dropped out of college and went to surf this wave on Maui, and, and I dragged my then girlfriend, who had no interest in. Maui or the ocean off there with me and she kind of took over the chapter she was just far more interesting than anybody else <laughs> in my life at the time or or to me and then the the scheme increasingly broke up as i actually began to try to to wrestle with what my family was and my family life and 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 my adolescence and and young adulthood and these different relationships most of them still um male friendships formed as they've tended to in my life, you know, quite vividly around surfing. But um it it became a a more full-bodied, i suppose you could say memoir. Do you think it also took that much time because it took that much
3: time for you to sort of grapple with all of that, you know, being able to write about your your family and and especially this early period of your life when you traveled the world for
1: four years? Yeah, it it was a long kind of um you know, you could call it therapy, sort of bringing stuff to the surface and and trying to decide what was real. I mean, I say that memoir is a weird genre for a reporter partly because you end up, you know, having to investigate your memories. Mm -hmm. You go back and report out your own past. And um, so that means contacting old, you know, long lost friends and frenemies and and finding very different versions of the same events and, and trying to reconcile those and, and checking um, contemporary accounts, you know, public sources, books, newspapers, and, and finding you have it all wrong. And, and then just the general thing of giving yourself the license to depict all these old friends and loved ones in these unguarded shared moments all off the record. This is private life. And uh, I mean, that's a big arrogation. You you have to think long and hard about what you're going to include and and what you should leave out. So, uh,
3: did you re-interview people about about the time, or did you go mostly off of what you had sort of put down in various ways?
1: No, I did. I re-interviewed people. I matter mean, of fact, checked um, nearly everything I could, and um, and took things out when people asked me to, and and tried to reconcile different versions of things. Um, some of that was quite tricky. I was sure I was right, but. Perhaps, you know, this was really that other person's really, really important moment. I was there, and so maybe their version weighs more than mine, even though I'm quite sure that factually mine's better. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, trying to find, split that difference. Um, And I actually got a big packet of maybe 50 letters um, from uh, when I was quite young, like 13, 14 I uh, We'd moved to Hawaii, and I just wrote constantly, it seems, um, back to my best friend in California. And to my amazement, he kept the letters. That's incredible. Yeah, and he's not a sort of hoarding or bookish guy. You wouldn't expect this at all. He's moved around. And I didn't even ask. This packet arrived unbidden in the mail some years ago. I think when I was wrestling with, with the first chapter, and they formed the backbone of the first chapter, because it's about those couple of years in Hawaii, and... What it was like to to land there and and find my way and surf there, and it was all there in these letters, including lots of embarrassing stuff that <laughs> some of which I decided to quote. <laughs> On the one hand, it was so true I couldn't have asked for anything more more authentic. Except then some of the stories in there I didn't believe. I thought that's impossible. Those currents could not have dragged us all the way to Cocoa Head. That's like five <laughs> miles. I'm exaggerating. Ugh. and then having to decide where I had exaggerated and. Do I really remember that wave? And all right, that. but and how I mean much the, do you trust the source when the source yeah, is you? Exactly. from Exactly. at yeah. thirteen, yeah. And you're in Hawaii telling these, you know, great surf tales, but um, but it formed a really, really solid backbone of fact and and feeling. I mean, just uh, this kid came through um, these letters in a way that was most unexpected.
2: Hey, it's Max. I'm going to uh, pause these guys for a second and tell you a little bit about our sponsors this week. First up is Squarespace. If you were listening a couple weeks ago, you know that Aaron and I just used Squarespace for a project. It's a totally true thing. We needed a website that looked good and we needed it quickly and we use Squarespace. Here's why. It's super, super simple. There is not an easier way to get up a website. It only costs eight bucks a month and you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Plus, if you use the code longform at checkout, it's 10% off. And your website, whether it's a for a blog or a store or a portfolio, whatever you need. It looks great on any device, phone, tablet, computer. It always just looks good. It works. Everything's drag and drop when you build the site. You don't need to know a lick of code. If you have any snags, they've got crazy, great, perfect customer support 24-7. But you won't have any problems because it's super easy because it's Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Also sponsoring the show this week, The Great Courses. The Great Courses, I'm a big fan. Here's why. I like learning. I'm interested in things. And The Great Courses helps you learn about things. They have, uh, I'm looking for the right word, uh, Great Courses. And The Great Courses Plus, it's a new service from them. It's a video learning service. You can have unlimited access to thousands of fascinating subjects. They've got over 4,000 lectures on there. History, science, photography, cooking, All taught by award-winning professors, not jokers, real professors, and experts from National Geographic and Smithsonian, the Culinary Institute of America. If you're a curious person, this is something you should try. And here's the thing, The Great Courses Plus, the streaming service where you can watch any of their courses, it's launching this fall. But listeners of Longform have the unique opportunity, they can try it right now. Free beta access. All you have to do is use the invitation code LONGFORM. The code is only going to work for the first 100 people, so go use it. The Great Courses Plus, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to thegreatcoursesplus.com and enter the invitation code LONGFORM. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com. Invitation code is LONGFORM. Thank you very much to them for sponsoring the show, and let's get back to Evan and Bill.
3: It's written with such such sort of soulful detail that I did wonder how much of that you could pull from your memory and how much of it you pulled from other sources
1: yeah. well it's i I say at various points in that first chapter you know as I wrote to my friend because mm-hmm. someone was just so like like my best friend in Hawaii I mean the, the kid I sort of started surfing with and and became my good friend there. Um, guy named Roddy Kalakakui, whose big brother Glenn Kalakakui was a magnificent surfer and big hero of mine. Um Roddy was also a really good surfer. And I described him to my friend, oh I surfing with this kid named Roddy, he's so tan, he looks Negro and mean, <laughs> it's just line after line that's just severely dated and odd. Mm-hmm. And some of them I quote.
3: Hmm. the other thing that uh, one thing that intrigued me, I mean you you describe so you're you're you grew up in predominantly in California, Los Angeles area. Uh, lived in Hawaii a bit, and that, that factors into getting into surfing as a kid. And, and your father was in the film, actually father and mother in film and television business. But the uh, you may be the first person we've had in 150-some people on this podcast whose father told him to become a journalist. But you took a very long way around to get there, uh, really into, what, almost your 30s. To
1: yeah, to yeah, I was nearly 30 when I finally started doing it.
3: I'm interested in in whether uh, the fact that that is something that your father wanted you to do is something that uh, actually may have prevented you from getting there in some way.
1: I think so. It really, really delayed the process. He was. I noticed on my birth certificate he was a news writer at CBS here in uh-huh. Manhattan when I was born, and he had um, blacklist troubles, and and so we moved to LA where he could get work more easily. He did every kind of job, and and um, in the TV and film business, and and eventually um, became a producer and 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 made his way just fine. But he was a kind of frustrated journalist. In fact, when he was young, around the time I was born, he was a kind of gopher. I gathered for Edward R. Murrow and those guys, um, mm-hmm. and and that, that those were his heroes, and that's what he wanted to be when he grew up. And that's not what he became when he grew up. And he was a labor organizer too, and he he ultimately was in management. You know, kind of trying to bust these unions that were trying to bust his ass when he was making pictures. Um, And he was fully aware of all the irony in that. (laughs) Yeah, when I was young, like 14, 15, I was already writing a lot. And and he um, wanted me to write an article for the surf magazines that I was constantly had my nose in. And I said, there's nothing for me to write about. What do you mean? He said, just write it. You know, I'll take the pictures. He liked to, you know, take pictures of his family and and I couldn't seem to get it through to him that he would never, in a lifetime, of try and take a picture that one of the surf mags would want to publish. Um, he was taking pictures of my friends and me, and you know, three foot Rincon. These these are not right. publishable quality. This wasn't a guy like shooting out of the barrel and his hands no, up. No, no, he would have had, really had, had to, yeah, move to the north shore of Oahu and and spend a long time with telephoto lens and get very very lucky if he ever could, you know. And there's nothing I could write. And he just was he was mistaken. He said, "Oh, you're just scared of you know." trying to get published. And that was true. I was scared of trying to get published. But I was also right. There was no article to be done. So that started early. That <laughs> Just write for publication, you know, obits, anything, school paper. I really built up resistance to it. Instead, I wrote, you know, surrealistic poetry and eventually fiction. But um, it took me a long time to come around to the fatherly calling.
3: And then you, wor- you worked as a train break operator. You described that in in the book, which is fascinating, and then but you keep you keep returning to surfing, and you 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 know keep sort of uh, it seems like heading out farther and farther until you sort of take off around the world, um, and you you write about this uh, really eloquently. But I'm curious what the the motivation of it all wasn't necessarily uh, just surfing. It seems like you were also looking for something on those travels, and I'm curious in hindsight or or having written the book and if you have reflected on what that was. Like, what, what was it in that time period that you were seeking?
1: I have thought a lot about that, and, and the clues to some of that are actually in journals I kept. Scenes, I would describe just ineffable moments in a lagoon in Tonga with some local boys and sort of comic books thrown on the water something. Just these times that I just felt the of weight of whatever I was seeing, you know, like that I was somehow collecting news of a very arcane kind, but I suppose in retrospect, I was just trying to find out what the world held, that nobody could tell me about until I got there i I was you know a big reader and and had a couple of degrees by that point, but there was something out well over the horizon that I wanted to get near and record and understand and I and I even felt like it would sort of transform me. I wanted to be a different person and I thought that if I went far enough into a among other things this sort were of pre-industrial life I had big fantasies about um, self-sufficiency and and not that that I was going to be able to you know live off the land in in Fiji. But um, that I wanted to be with people who could and did, and 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 that something would transmit to me. So yeah, we were looking for ways. I was uh, with my friend Brian DeSalvatore, um, also a surfer and also a writer, um, in the South Pacific and then Australia and Southeast Asia. Um, uh, long, long surf trip, almost four years, and um, it was a lot more than just chasing waves. Mm-hmm. And 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 yet that gave us a kind of focus each day. You get up, and that's what you're doing. In fact, Brian showed me something from his journals um, from Western Samoa, as it then was, where we'd seen a group of backpackers, I think they were, in in, in Apia, the town there. And and I was incensed, and I don't remember this at all, but it's recorded in his journal lots of um, goofy things I said and did. And, and I'm just incensed by these people. I said, they're nothing but goddamn sightseers. What are they doing here? Well, I don't know what they're doing there. They're tourists. They're passing through just like we were. Um, but I, somehow I felt or we felt like, well, it's this useless, useless thing we're pursuing, but at least we get up each day and we have a project. We're trying to find waves, usually way out in the boondock somewhere. Mm-hmm. And we're usually in town just trying to organize supplies to head for some other promising-looking place on, on these navigational charts we work from. What we seemed to be doing every day was chasing waves, but, but 98% of the time we weren't surfing. In the book, you talk about that difference between sort of feeling that difference between a,
3: being a traveler and being a tourist. Or sort of like immersing yourself in the local community and and passing through that you felt that tension and it occurred to me that that later on I mean that's also in a way what reporting is like going somewhere and reporting is an excuse to not be a tourist to yeah
1: lots of people were into that distinction and you know nobody wants to be a tourist at least in our world yeah the sort of next step is really having a project um, and the next step again I would say is actually doing something for people who could use some help and and I never i have got that far um you know reporting is is got an ostensible social use but it's it's pretty abstract yeah and um surfing's got none (laughs) and although sometimes you if you find good enough waves you end up bringing in your wake a lot of other surfers and resorts and things like that which you were also ambivalent
3: about i mean in some ways the local Mm. economy could use it and but then for the surfer who had discovered it it was a nightmare to watch it all Disappear under the
1: right, right, and it's not the not the most um, auspicious model for development either. But (laughs) um, it is true that well, Brian and I found this um, one truly great wave in Fiji off an uninhabited island where we camped, and um, very much wanted to keep that wave a secret, um, and thought we had. A few other people knew about it, very few, and we thought that's how it was. And then it turned out years later that word got out and, and and some Americans leased the island from the government and opened a resort and and so on, um, which was um, sort of horrible. I mean, you were always looking for these undiscovered ways where there are no other people, you could just surf them with your friends or by yourself. And so that place was blown open and and, and worse than that it was it was privatized. I mean, they had a agreement with the government, the owners of the resort that nobody else could surf the reef off this island and another outer reef that you need a boat to get to. So really kind of politically indefensible and um, privatized waves. But I eventually, many years later, kind of swallowed my principles. I wanted to surf it so much again that I um, went there and became a paying guest and then became, like, every time I could afford to make it there, I would go. So I'm in no position to judge. How did it feel? Just... Wave felt really, really amazing. And this outer reef we hadn't found. We never suspected it was out there. It was too far out to see. And uh, and I really got to love that wave. It was called Cloud Break. It's a bigger, kind of meteor, less mechanical wave than the one on the island, which is among the highest quality waves in the world. And Cloud Break is, too, for that matter. And I got really quite addicted to Cloud Break. But the, the, some of the Fijians from the villages around there... Um, recognized me from the old days um, and realized, oh, yeah, this is a crazy guy who camped with his friend. And uh, back when nobody knew what surfing was, nobody would ever seen a surfboard. And the island was full of poisonous snakes. Yeah. The, the whole area wasn't that hospitable to camping mainly because of the snakes. And now there aren't many left, if any. But they really had a laugh at my expense. You know, this is the guy who failed to start the hotel. Can you believe it? And, you know, to hear them laughing at me and patting me on the back.
3: That yeah. you could have made all the money that you could have... Yeah, they didn't the realize result. I'm not made of that,
1: that kind of <laughs> stuff. I couldn't have forged a resort out of, the, out of the jungle like those guys did.
3: Well, I'm interested in what uh, actually pulled you into journalism. I mean, there's this sort of pivot point in the book where you, you come back to the United States after this, after this trip and after working in South Africa, uh, teaching in South Africa, and then you're living in San Francisco, and then sort of suddenly you have a book contract to write a book and i wanted to find out what mm. what happened in that space mm-hmm. just literally how did that come about sure. at what point did you sort of say actually i'm going to change what i what i want to write about i'm going to be something else
1: well i got to cape town got a job teaching in a black high school in a township there and turned into a really intense year that students went on strike uh, against apartheid in education this is in the battle days of apartheid and it was really exciting, really interesting place to, to be. And then this confrontation with the state escalated and escalated, it eventually got very violent. And um, a lot of people were hurt and killed in the communities where I worked. And a lot of our students and some of my colleagues disappeared into the regime's jails. And it was just such a, an intense year that it changed my perspective on on what was worth doing I was at the time finishing my third novel and I finished it but I really lost interest in the kind of sort of language heavy fiction that I was writing and really wanted to do basically political journalism I mean politics seemed more important than anything else and but I wasn't able to to sort of turn on a dime and start writing about South Africa mm-hmm. although that was the place I was so involved in, and in the anti-apartheid struggle was kind of all consuming at that point. And that was partly because I kind of uh, took on the, the fundamentalism of the people I most admired there, um, who were all political militants. I say fundamentalism just because everything is put to a very hard litmus test, which is will this help? Mm-hmm. Will this materially help the liberation struggle or not? Um sounds ridiculous now, but at the time it made perfect sense. I was starting to even freelance and I started writing some articles and and pieces from there, but not about South Africa. It was a world news story this because mm-hmm. it spread the student um protest spread, spread nationally. there were schools that were closed for two years and it was a big big uh, episode in the in the long struggle against apartheid and um and a couple of editors got the idea that I was somehow in the middle of this, which I really was, and um, it started in Cape Town, and I was teaching out there on the Cape Flats, and, and there weren't any other Americans around, to say the least. And so there was some interest. Well, why don't you write something about that? And I sort of put it to this test, and, and I thought, absolutely not. I'm not going to amuse your readers with, you know, tales of suffering from here unless you plan to do something, which I'm sure you don't, was kind of this mm. incredible attitude I had. Mm. And I'd look at magazines like the New Yorker, which I'd always loved and and secretly wanted to write for, but I'd look at it and it seemed so. By then, I'd been out of the U.S. for years, and and it just seems so alien. The ads for, you know, expensive, expensive clothes and cars, and and I just think, who reads this? You know, I don't. I mean, certainly, I'm not going to entertain these people with stories of the suffering here mm-hmm. and and the injustice here. Because I know they're not going to do anything, so I had this kind of cracked idea. And when that school year ended, um, I was really exhausted, and I'd saved a little money and went traveling north um, overland through Africa. But I was 28, I think, and I said, "That's it. I'm, I'm going to stop doing these day jobs. I've done. You know, I've been a railroad brakeman and a bartender and done all these different things to pay the bills. And um, I said, "That's it. I'm going to now." support myself by writing so that's when i became a freelancer and really went broke Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i came back to the u.s i forget what i was writing about but it wasn't south africa and then had a long drive with a friend when i was still sort of making my way home to california across the u.s we're driving from montana to seattle and i remember she asked me as we got in her truck so tell me about south africa and i thought i don't want to talk about south africa i was hungover i don't want to talk at all but I said, okay, uh, she's giving me a ride. I should, you know. And so I started talking about South Africa. And like eight hours later, I was still talking faster and faster. And I, we got to Seattle, and she just said, wow. <laughs> you know, ask a question, get an answer. And, <laughs> and I thought, wow, you know, South Africa was the best thing that ever happened to me. I'm just completely consumed with it. And so I wrote a magazine article within the next year, say, um, about my experience teaching at school. Was that New um, Yorker? No, that oh. was for Mother Jones, ah. and it was completely unsatisfying. It just felt untrue. I mean, I was kind of getting over my my militance um, test. You know, I didn't, I wasn't applying that anymore. I was back in the U.S. I was, you know, getting soft and bourgeois again, <laughs> and it just felt so untrue to the experience to do it in six thousand words or whatever space I had. Everything was sort of one dimensional where it had been four or five, you know, every character was just a little kind of cartoon when mm-hmm. it really had been somebody I knew well and cared about and would love to render properly. So I decided I'll write a book. So it wasn't suddenly, it was like a long, slow process. I see. And, and I um, wrote a proposal and got an agent and 20 publishers turned it down, I think. Nobody was interested in South Africa, they said. And finally, one publisher gave me a small advance and a contract and I went to work on it. There in San Francisco, but it was a long, slow process to come around the corner and realize this is what I have to write about. Now let's do it properly. And and uh, so then I, I spent a year or two writing that book and moved to New York uh, around the time it was published.
3: And then as you got into you know writing for the New Yorker and doing these pieces like about the war in Mozambique, I went back and read that. That was another huge two-part uh, piece. They're very long, and they're also I don't say formless because that implies they had no structure, and obviously they have structure. But in terms of the reporting. What did an assignment like that look like for you? Did they say, whoever the editor was at the time, say, go, spend a spend a month, see, see what happens, wander around? H- how did you sort of set up to do these type of stories?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, um, it was William Sean who sent me to do the long piece about the reporters in Johannesburg. And I think he just understood, as I understood, that it would, produce a hell of a narrative just their work and get to know those people and in fact I came back and told him the story he, you know just orally went met him in his office and and told him what I'd seen and and heard and found and and he said how long do you think that'll be and, and I said oh I don't know long like 20,000 words maybe and he said oh I think much longer than that <laughs> and I said great yes <laughs> and I forget it was probably 50,000 words or more you don't um, hear that as as often. No, today. I haven't heard that recently. But this was in 1986, I think. So it was it was obvious what how that thing was going to be a pretty elaborate um, story about the newspapers and the guys and their lives and and all the different um, forces they were confronting and they were really colorful characters. And but Mozambique by then the editor was Bob Gottlieb, and he was unabashed about his utter indifference to stories in places like Mozambique, his attitude was, was sort of, you know, if you must. And uh, and I had to, I felt like, so I did. And never really had any questions about how long I was away or how much I spent, I suppose. Um, and uh, it was only later that sort of the purse strings got tighter. Mm-hmm. Although I, I did just kind of hitch rides around in Mozambique. It's not like I chartered planes or anything.
3: You had this experience of these surf trips, which it struck me as sort of translating, as I read the pieces later, into a very similar approach. Like in one place you're looking for one thing, in another place you're looking for another. But the how you get there and the techniques seemed somewhat similar.
1: Yeah. It, it was. I didn't ever think about it that way, but it was completely familiar to me, um, although I'd become a journalist and was making a living at it. Just being in a poor place... Getting around by word of mouth, asking people questions, chasing a story rather than chasing waves, and maybe living a little better—you know, staying in hotels (laughs) rather than sleeping under a bush—but but but yeah, it it was all very familiar to me. It was like I had been doing that for a long time.
3: The topics you write about are essentially have been social justice, war, poverty, politics, international relations. I mean I found a couple of pieces that were slightly different. I love this piece called A Theft in the Library, which is just like a little caper about a guy who steals maps. But other than that, what do you think drives you to those topics? W- where does that where does that originate from? I mean it's interesting because you mentioned like not being potentially fearing not being taken seriously and there is this sort of contrast between mm-hmm. writing about something like surfing and the weight of the topics that you've chosen mm-hmm. for the bulk of your writing career to write about.
1: Yeah. I think I still have an old-fashioned hope that journalism can can make a difference in the, in the area of social justice. And I realize sometimes, like this piece I just did about, they call themselves artisanal gold miners mm-hmm. in Peru, illegal gold miners in the high Andes. There are more of them in the alluvial mining in the rainforest, I think, but there's quite a few up in the high Andes doing hard rock mining. And... My instinct was to try and find the politics under what they're doing, and and the miners' union, the incipient unionism, that kind of thing. And it just wasn't there. I mean, there were people who put themselves forth as leaders of the miners when there was some conflict or protest, but the actual miners that I hung out with hardly knew their names, and said, "All those guys just, you know, appear and talk to reporters when, when the Times drive. We don't know who they are. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean anything." but there was a very interesting kind of indigenous politics around the labor system and and yet i have this instinct to look for the movement look for the sort of social justice side of any story and 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 i don't mean just sort of play up activists cuz often activists turn to be frauds or disappointments in one way or another mm-hmm. but to frame a story in in political terms that that um will translate across to american readers and there really wasn't much of a way to do that in in Peru, for instance. in the story, and I was a little frustrated. And and an old friend of mine from South Africa days, from Cape Town, a, a woman who was a high school student back in those days when I was teaching there, and a and a militant, she read that piece and and said, "There's no hope there. What's you know? I can't see." She is still an activist and, and is looking for the progressive alternative in this situation, and there isn't one. There truly isn't one. It, it was grim. Yeah, yeah. It's really a That a tough, town was unbelievably grim. Yeah. Really, really tough story. And um, I mean, tough, tough people, tough, tough place. there have been a fair amount of kind of knee-jerk reports from there, both Peruvian and, and a couple of international stories, um, suggesting that... You know, the miners, mainly indigenous men and women, were being, um, you know, horribly exploited with this pre-modern labor system called cachorreo by the mine owners. So there was that story kind of around and out and, and where they work for no salary for 30 days and no pay at all. And then they have one day to kind of scrabble out anything they can mm-hmm. for themselves. And maybe they'll find some gold. And maybe right. And we'll at lucky. Yeah. That kind of thing. And it was true that that was the system Cachorreo, but it had all these funny aspects and all this pilfering that went on around it and 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 a kind of natural right that these miners believed in um, that accrued to them doing the work down in the mountain and, and their luck and the suerte, the, my luck is everything. And and, and the biggest protests that come when the government was trying to eliminate Cachorreo, when they were um trying to modernize the labor system up there and the miners would go out on strike absolutely not they would not go down into the earth with with they didn't have their cacho this crazy old-fashioned system but that did allow a few people to you know hit the hit patriot now -hmm. and then and i wrote about a guy in in detail who who could defend it kind of eloquently and and it was not at all what one expected but it was it was a piece without a kind of modern moral really
3: yeah well, back to the book for a second. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to articulate part of what I was hinting at at the beginning, which was, so you've put this memoir out in the world. I mean, one of the interesting things about writing a memoir is that uh, now not only are people are reacting to the book as they would have with any piece of writing you have, they're actually re- reacting to you and reacting <laughs> to your life. And I've seen, in re- I read a bunch of reviews and interviews with you, and I feel like the word envy comes up uh, sometimes. People, people read the book, and I had some of this myself, and read about those adventures and, and you being in your 20s and traveling to these places and finding these remote breaks, surfing breaks, and they feel envy for uh, the way you've lived your life. And I'm curious, if you look back on those times, how do you react to people feeling that way about it?
1: Well, it's true that I got lucky here and there, was in the right place at the right time, got some great waves with, with no crowds. But like in the world of surfing, there's a lot of stuff about the good old days and the Golden Age, and right. I don't believe any of that. Um, I mean, most of the places I grew up surfing were horribly crowded, and we were like nine years old and nostalgic for the good old <laughs> days we missed. Uh-huh. That just runs all through surfing. And, and the kind of broader um, idea that I had a wonderful time in a period that was more fun than now... I don't buy at all. Um, I mean, I just read through my journals and all the kind of just, that's a big reality check on nostalgia. Um, They're mainly misery and sort of tearing at my own guts over one thing or another. Um, So, I don't have any illusions about how happy I was at any given point in my youth. In fact, I remember after getting back from that one long, long surf trip um, that had its idyllic parts, or at least they sound idyllic in the the telling. And an old friend of mine saying, I know why you went around the world because you couldn't find enough to be miserable about in this country, which was a mean but very insightful thing to say, unfortunately. It was wrong. That's that's not was not my motivation, but that was a kind <laughs> of jaundiced way of seeing me. You know, he just didn't think of me as a happy go lucky guy at all. Yeah. You know, I'd spent a long time in the undeveloped world and in poor places and and felt, you know, the sort of Westerners liberal guilt about that and and just thought that really I sucked at some fundamental level and, and, and that that all of us was this undeserved privilege do, um, that is, suck. And um, I did get one review. This book did get one review that was really nasty. And, um, and I thought, what? That's, you know, this judgment or that judgment's not that fair. Oh, he's kind of nailed me here. But then I thought, why is he being so nasty about this? And I thought, this guy is envious. And other people have been sort of upfront saying, oh, I envy that you. you did this and that, and you know, you had such a good time when you were young, and, and you got to go to this great place for that, and or you got lucky at the New Yorker, which is certainly true. What makes you say you got lucky there? Well, it's just a great place to work, and it's sort of where I wanted to work. Yeah. And I, I tell a story in the book where I was living in Australia and uh, found a huge stack of old second-hand New Yorkers for a penny apiece. piece. And, shop, and I bought a couple hundred and gave them to my friend, um, Brian, who um, we both were longtime readers and admirers of the magazine, well, a long time. We were in our 20s, but I suppose he was 30. And we just kind of read through them. He, he was reading them systematically in this place where we were living in Queensland. And, and then we set off across the country, and the ones that we hadn't hadn't been finished were sort of stuffed into the front seat of the car, and we'd pull them out and read them to each other, driving across the outback. And, and really sort of having fun with putting various types of writing to what you could call the outback test, you know. How does this stuff hold up in the sort of harsh desert light or, you know, what what seems like hothouse posing now? And, <laughs> and, and and not just the New Yorker, but other, you know, books. I was horrified that Norman Mailer failed the outback test. Yeah. I think that was his book, Fire on the Moon, <laughs> but he was one of my heroes. and But it just, this stuff just did not hold up. It read really pretentiously. And I think that even in those years, um, Brian and I both were Keeping you know notes for a letter from Queensland, and you know wanting to write for the magazine in some way, mm-hmm. and, and, and we both ended up there actually. He, he um within about ten years he was also on staff there. So yeah, that seemed I, remarkable to me. Yeah, quite a symmetry, quite a sort of roundabout route to desired destination, and uh, it's just been a, a great place to work, and it's been a kind of home base. You know, and to have it as a writer, it's you know generally such lonely work. Um, it's wonderful to have some sense of a Home to you. Yeah, it's a strong institution
3: in that mm. in that way, protective of of writers. Um, but back to the back to the envy thing for a second. I mean, not to I'm not trying to make this about me, but one of the reasons it particularly affected me, I think, is that I've lived many of the places that you went. Like I've lived in Australia, mm. I've lived in Hawaii, and I kept reading it as sort of like a shade, like a life ten x better lived than my version of it, like more adventurous and like more daring in a way and it, it made me seem feel like a tourist in the places where I went and you like a traveler and I'm not sure what my question is in this except that it does make me wonder what your view of it is like do you view th- what's in here as sort of like a life well lived do you have regrets about things that are in the book or do you feel more nostalgic towards what happened in the book or in your life, I should say.
1: <laughs> I, I really don't think I feel nostalgic. I, as I say, I've got too many sort of reality checks on, on these various eras. And I have a pretty fatalistic view. I mean, plenty of regrets. You know, I all of the stupid, cruel, illegal, and generally regrettable things <laughs> I did. Some of them, quite a few of them are in the book. And, uh, and then there are the others that were just too grim to contemplate or, oh. or tell anybody about huh. Um, And other ways I treated my girlfriends, just how selfish I was and and kind of obtuse and not getting it at various points and failing to appreciate um, some really wonderful people in my life. I could call those regrets, yes. I could have done better, certainly, but I didn't. And there's nothing, you know, crushingly destructive that happened at any point. Mm -hmm. And, And so it's it's nothing that i regard with real horror in the book at all no hearing you say that about your time in australia or hawaii makes me wonder if i haven't greatly idealized and (laughs) (laughs) exaggerated whatever i got up to um or just left out tons of um you know quotidian or or downbeat detail that would would reveal how adventurous and I wasn't, and yeah,
3: I don't, I don't, I don't actually think you've romanticized it. I mean, I think there's a lot in there about how difficult or dark or f- how aimless it felt, or mm. how you felt like that's good because that's how it was. Western privilege and all of the things that sort of bubbled up around lonely that. Lonely and
1: it, pointless, and what am I doing <laughs> with my life? That was like a pervasive feeling.
3: But as a reader, it's sort mm. of easy to
1: still romanticize it. Mm-hmm. And I did find when I was sort of reporting out my life that I had exaggerated and romanticized a bunch of things, Uh mainly about friends. I'd sort of tell a story of a friend and then tell it again and tell it again over the decades and there'd be these incremental increases in the kind of glory of their exploits, usually before I knew them, not when I was there, because I was there. And then I'd check. So, you were a good friend of Jack Kerouac's, right? Oh. (laughs) But I mean, you corresponded with him. Oh. You went to his funeral? Oh, good. You went to a, you know. I had completely, <laughs> wow, <laughs> exaggerated. Yeah. This, as I say, it was there were several, a bunch of cases of these, and almost everyone was some old friend of mine that I'd, you know, kind of mythified or or blown up in in some way that that glowed more than than facts. Uh huh. And, and I hope I caught a lot of stuff. But no, a couple of my siblings have said no, no, I didn't. You know, I've already I've, for the paperback, I've got a few corrections.
3: Oh, and the friends. I mean, you 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 have a. Sp- succession of very close male friends that are those friendships are you're gone into in depth how have they responded to to the book
1: well each differently probably the biggest character in there brian Salvatore, that i travel with and surf with in my 20s mainly i don't think he's read it yet so i haven't heard from him that's hmm. a big one a couple of the guys in The later chapters, the guy I mainly surf with here in New York, um, been really enthusiastic. Um, He's just got that last chapter to worry about personally. (laughs) The chapter just before that, I just spent the weekend with the sort of hero of that chapter, the Madeira chapter. He lives out at the East End of Long Island. um, He's reading the book, but I don't think he's got to his chapter yet. He doesn't (laughs) seem to have skipped ahead. I mean, I checked all the facts with him. That's a remarkable and, restraint. Yeah. I mean, he looks... There are a couple of great pictures of him. So he steps ah. forward, and his wife admires the pictures, and she's urging him to hurry up, and she wants to read it, you know. And I didn't even realize there's a sort of horrifying... Um, one of the closest calls I've had surfing was with him um, one night in Maduro, or one one day when surf got really big, and, and then it got dark, and we were stuck out there at night. And and actually he ended up feeling like he saved my life. And, you know, obviously we made it back in eventually. but. I didn't realize till I was checking facts with him that that was it for him that he we were going to Madeira every winter and surfing these heavy waves and and after that really close call at night he never went back he that was it and all the subsequent Madeira trips I did alone and I hadn't even noticed I mean every year it was like oh we're going back but then you know he didn't come he couldn't go for some and, reason yeah. and then I asked him about he said oh yeah I you know thought about it hard and and uh, you know, my wife and, and, you know, what it would mean if I didn't come back and for everybody. And, you know, I just, uh, and it wasn't worth it. And that was it. I hung it up that night. And uh, I had noticed till I was writing this book 10, 15 years later.
3: What causes you to be on the other side of that
1: calculus? Well, I don't know. I just, I just thought, man, was I stupid? I didn't even, we did not even discuss it. I didn't even consider not going back. I just, you know, I was so into Madeira. Yeah. That thing had, Shaking me up and it didn't go back for a year that was the last trip that winter but um, it didn't occur to me to stop until my daughter was born about four or five years later and then it did occur to me to stop
3: yeah well thank you so much for coming I really oh, my appreciate pleasure. it
1: it's been fun
3: that's it for this week's Long Form Podcast thanks to Bill Finnegan for coming in Bill Finnegan who even though he does not surf the insane waves of places like Madeira anymore, you could still find Out on a Surfboard all over the world. It's pretty incredible. I recommend Barbarian Days, the book, very, very highly. Thanks, as always, to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman. Thanks to our intern, Molly Bain. Thanks to our sponsors, Squarespace, The Great Courses, and Tiny Letter. And thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer of Longform. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist, and we'll see you next week.